Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. I am your co-host, Carlos Carvalho, with my colleague, Mario Villarreal. Our guest today is Enrico Moretti. Enrico is the Michael P.V. and Don Ovio Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Enrico has a vast publication list in the fields of labor and urban economics, and he joins us today to talk about his book, The New Geography of Jobs. Enrico, welcome to Policy McCombs. Thank you for having me. So let me start with two great quotes from the book. Um, first, um, I can remember, I think it's in the beginning, uh, you say that what divides America today is not just socioeconomic status, but also geography. And the second one, which is in the very end, when you say that one of the most intriguing paradoxes of, uh, in this, the global economy is becoming increasingly local. So I think those two quotes are, are, are a good start for, for you to run us through the argument of, of the new geography of jobs. Sure. Um, we tend to think of the American labor market as one unified labor market. But in reality, uh, there are 300 labor markets in the U.S., one for each metropolitan area in the country. And the wages, the incomes, the standard of living that a worker can receive in each of these markets is different, is quite different, and it's increasingly different. So the main argument of the book is that the American communities are, are, are growing apart in terms of their economic success, in particular when you're looking at wages and, and uh, uh, economic factors, and that these factors ultimately also have an effect, a deep effect, on other parts of, of those communities. They're not just pure economics, but they extend to, to crime, to politics, to health, to, to even family formation. Um, we live in a country that is incredibly, in, increasingly different, and the difference increasingly depends on geography. And that difference, when you, when you call it the, the great divergence, uh, uh, it, it applies not only to, to high-skilled labor, but to everybody that lives in those communities. So I remember one of the, the tell us a little bit about this, the story of Bill Gates, because I think that, that there's an anecdote about Albuquerque and Seattle there that I think tells, you know, shows the divergence. Yeah, I think that's a very compelling story because I think it, it highlights how communities can grow apart. Um, it's a story about two, two places, uh, Seattle and Albuquerque. Seattle, we tend to think of Seattle as this remarkable local economy today. Uh, it's one of the most successful cities in the U.S. in terms of innovation sector, salaries, job growth. Uh, it's a place that has been on fire uh, for the past 20 years in terms of um, uh, labor market. Um, but Seattle wasn't really like that in the late 70s. It was a uh, it was struggling. Uh, Seattle in the late 70s didn't have much high tech. Uh, it had an old industrial structure, mostly logging and, and some, some, some truck manufacturing. Uh, the only advanced manufacturing they had was Boeing, but Boeing was really struggling back then. It was uh, shedding jobs by the thousands. And the city was really hurting. You could see it in its, it, both in the local economy, but also in the school, in crime, in all the local amenities that were uh, really suffering. And then something happened. Uh, and, and, and by the way, at the same time, um, you know, we, 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 
you could also see it in its cultural institutions and in its uh, hospitals and its pretty much any aspects of, of public life was struggling. But then something happened. Uh, it, it was um, January of 1979 that changed the trajectory of the CD forever. Uh, and then what happened was a small startup uh, decided to relocate from Albuquerque, New Mexico to, to Seattle. Um, that small startup, nobody noticed at the time, it were only 11 jobs. Um, and that small startup was, uh, was Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft had not started in Seattle. <laughs> um, at the time, Albuquerque was a more of a tech destination than, than Seattle. Uh, the, the main reason why Bill Gates and, and Alan had put the, 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 their startup in, in Albuquerque was that that's where their clients were. That's where software <laughs> users were. Um, they wanted to move back to their family. They grew up in Seattle. It was not like an economic choice. It was something that had to do with where they grew up. Uh, and they wanted to move back close to their parents and their, the place where they grew up. Um, but that individual choice eventually changed the trajectory of the city of Seattle and the city of Albuquerque uh, permanently. In fact, if you look at the data, you can clearly see that you know Albuquerque and Seattle are trending along similar path in the years before 1979. But after Microsoft moved there, uh, you start seeing uh, Seattle taking off at an increasingly fast rate, uh, attracting more and more college graduates, more and more workers with master degrees, more and more startups and investment in tech. Um, as, as Microsoft grows through the 80s and the 90s, it becomes the center of a cluster that expands well behind Microsoft and now employs hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of, of, of uh, generate millions of good jobs in the area, which is ultimately why, uh, why Seattle is booming. At the same time, you look at Albuquerque, it's been not doing as, as well. Uh, wages have been stagnating uh, and it hasn't been attractive to high-skilled labor to the same extent. To, so just to finish this one, and I think you should say that the, 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 the amount of uh, high-skilled labor in Albuquerque is about the same now than it was in 1980, in the same one I mentioned here is the, is the book in 2012, right? But a, a low-skilled worker will be making $4,000 more in Seattle in 1980, and now it makes $14,000 more than Albuquerque uh, in 2012, which is, which is a, a dramatic difference, right? So that impact of the cluster, it goes beyond the high-skilled labor impacts yes. the low-skilled labor workers in, the, in those, those localities as well. One important fact that it's often lost, especially in people who are critical of this type of growth, is that the growth of the in innovation sector um, increases the demand for a lot of other jobs that are not in the innovation sector. And I think Seattle really ex exemplifies it uh, as the number of engineers, computer scientists, Mathematician and software developers grew in Microsoft and in the in, in the Seattle area. The demand for local services also increased because these people needed local services, anything from <laughs> going to a restaurant, building a house, childcare, doctor, lawyers, real estate, uh, um, um, entertainment, and retail. All these jobs are local services, and they. They employ a vast and diverse group of people that are not in, in tech, they're not in innovation, um, and they're actually the majority 
of, of the workforce. That's true in every city in the U.S. And what we see historically is that cities that are booming in terms of innovation sector jobs are also increasing the, the, the demand for service jobs. So for people who have just regular jobs in a store, in a restaurant, in a, driving a, a taxi or, 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 or they're architects, doctors and lawyers. And they, they you know, th- th- there's a powerful multiplier effect here. And for each tech job, there are many jobs created in the local service sector. By my estimate, five additional jobs are created in the local service sector outside iTech for each additional job. And I, I think it's what it means is that the growth of the tech sector really is not generate benefits for not just for a group of people, but it, on a broad base. Yeah, this is a good uh, um, opportunity for to pivot to a general aspect of the book that I think is fantastic. And uh, there is a constant concern in general in society, economists, policymakers, politicians, the society at large, about creating good jobs. Like it's a constant conversation. Now, um, y- your book alludes alludes to to that. So, what are the main lessons that you can draw from your work about how do we create good jobs in a society? You talk about the need of supporting a viable ecosystem for companies in cities. You just describe the trickle down or multiplier effect. And uh, I would add something because, after all, we are a policy center, policy oriented center. What is the role for public policy there? Uh. Um, it's a great question. It's probably the one of the main questions for our times. Uh, in a in a society where some cities are attracting a lot of high paying jobs and creating all this additional job creation outside iTech, while other cities are struggling, uh, you know, think about the Rust Belt, think about places like Flint or Detroit. They clearly don't have that that type of job creation. Uh, the question about what to do uh, to help the cities that are struggling uh, to generate good jobs uh, it's crucial. Um, I think that the when you look at the history of high-tech clusters uh, in the U.S., whether Silicon Valley, you know, the biggest of all, or like smaller clusters that you see throughout. The, the the nation. There is not many examples. In fact, there is no example of clusters that were created by a deliberate policy on the part of a local government or a mayor or a state government that said, we're going to create there the next Silicon Valley. The typical story that you see uh, is very similar to the Seattle story, where a local company start growing in a sector and then it started attracting other companies that are similar. And around that company, you see, you, you for, like an ecosystem gets formed that then makes that place even more attractive and attracts even more companies and even more workers of that type. The, the, the Bill Gates case, I think, is, exemplifies how many of the clusters uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, form. And that's a big that 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 makes it very challenging for the Flints, for the Detroits, because it's really hard to identify who is the next Bill Gates. <laughs> it's really hard to identify who should we attract. Um, I think one thing that local and state government can do that has been estimated to have a very good return for the local economy is to invest in the education of their residents at all levels, whether it's lower level of education or higher education, like. 
state universities like where we're sitting right now, um, that investment it it's has has a very good return, social return, and from the point of view, not just for the individual who get that schooling, but also for other members of the community who live surrounded by highly skilled workers. And I think that um, one, once a community starts increasing its level of education, in particular, uh, you know, high school graduation and college graduation, what you see is that the economy changes and makes it more attractive to certain type of employers who are, you know, who are providing good jobs. Could you elaborate on your take uh, of using subsidies and other type of economic incentives uh, that local governments sometimes try to implement to entice companies and try to bring that process that otherwise, as you describe it, would be more organic and spontaneous in nature? Yeah, it's a big issue. Um, we're spending, Pat Klein and I, in a paper, estimate that we're spending about $90 billion annually on this type of subsidies. So it's a big form of welfare, if you if you want. Uh, it doesn't target individual, but targets company. Um, it's also an incredibly bipartisan policy. People, both in blue state and red state, love it. And you can see, with, I mean, the, the hopes are that, you know, if, if the story is true, that the hubs are so economically uh, 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 prosperous after. So that's what I can see why governments are trying yes. to come in and say, listen, let's create yeah. one. Yes. And the dollar offers are, are the dollars that get offered, the amount that get offered is, is very large. Um, we just saw last year the Amazon HQ2 saga. Uh, some localities were offering $6 billion to attract Amazon's jobs. Um, and Amazon is not the only one. I mean, the, the, the Tesla received uh, $2 billion from, from the state of Nevada to go to Reno. Foxcom received $2 billion from the state of Wisconsin to go to Wisconsin. So it's, it's really big money. Um, it's, there are... I don't think we know the answer whether this is uh, money that is efficiently spent. On one end, if there are these forces of agglomeration, this, this, this tendency of, of success to generate more success for communities, it's not crazy to think that you want to subsidize the first movers, the, 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 the seed that, that will then generate the cluster. On the other hand, it, a lot of these subsidies are generally a zero-sum game among communities in the sense that, uh, you know, Amazon was going to go somewhere in North America. Um, by offering subsidies, essentially, we're transferring taxpayer money to to the company. The net effect, on average, for the, for the country is not, it, it's actually zero. Um, uh, we studied uh, these subsidies in a paper with uh, Michael Greenstone and Rick Ornbeck, and we look at manufacturing subsidies for manufacturing plants. We are finding... That and we're comparing, and we're looking at discount is when they're bidding. Uh, it's a bidding process where essentially just like an auction, where counties are offering and, and increasing their bids and so on. And we we were comparing what happens to the county that wins the bids, to the county that made it to the last round and barely lost it. Uh, and we were finding that um, for the incumbent manufacturing plants in the county that wins, we are finding that the winning increase productivity in, in, in that county. So these are plans that existed before the, the big new plant gets attracted. And we're measuring total factor productivity in this plan. We're finding that productivity increases and wages tend to increase in the county as, a, as an effect, as a causal effect of a win in this. That, that doesn't mean that, that that's money that, you know, that it's all money well spent. You know, there, there, uh, if you get 
$5 billion, <laughs> uh, if you spend $5 billion and you get an increase in productivity, you really need to compare uh, how much you spend with how much you put in. Uh, and so, I, so, so the short answer to your question is, I think it, this is an area of active research. We don't know exactly the cost and benefits. I think on, in the aggregate, it's almost certainly not a good idea <laughs> because it's a zero-sum game. Uh, for individual communities, it might be a good idea when they're targeting specific specific companies, um, but it's really hard to do it in an efficient way because you really need to... <laughs> You really need the local mayor and local government to be like a venture capitalist and have, you know, really pick the right the right winners. And that's a hard that's a hard thing to do. So, so another topic that that local governments can have a role here is that, in some ways, it's hard for us to believe that everybody can be a success story. So some some cities are just have to realize that you know, it's better off for our citizens to go somewhere else. And go take advantage of these clusters that are going to be they're going to be successful and becoming more successful. The size of the market matter and the force of attractions that, that, that you describe in the book. So um, having people, giving people the ability to move to the communities where they can be more prosperous, they can be more productive, even in low skill jobs, is something that uh, currently we don't do that great of a job. And I think you, you point two things in the book. Uh, one, you talk about the the the, the unemployment benefits. Uh, that could be targeted to help people actually move to find a better labor market. But the other one is the fact that housing supply is a big issue in those clusters. Where So, so you know, do you see any cities dealing with those things in, in any better way than others? Or do, would you agree that supply is the main issue associated with affordability in, in, in cities across the country? I think supply is one of the key issues. Um, when you're thinking about the big boom towns of the 1950s and 1960s, places like Detroit, it was very easy for the average family to, who was not living there to pack and move and move to Detroit and get a good job and get a, it was easy for them to find housing. Right? When you think about the boom town of today, San Francisco, Seattle, Austin or Boston, um, these are much more expensive places to move. Uh, it's not that easy for the average family to relocate there. Uh, because of the cost of housing. And, um, and so um, I think that the supply of housing in particularly productive cities that are experiencing um, uh, increases in, uh, that are experiencing you know, what's a good thing, which is a very strong labor demand and, 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 and rising uh, job creation, um, it does play an important role. And what it does, essentially, it transfers some of the benefit away from the families uh, to the incumbent landowners who are lucky enough to own land before, before the boom. And you point out that the, 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 the sort of driver of inequality that, those, those, that the divergence is, is generating not only comes through the labor market, but also through the housing market, right? Because, because the, a lot of the wealth is being created through that. And, and that's, that's, that's not a... We can fight that trend. It's easier in some ways, quote unquote, to fight a trend if we allow for more housing to be to be developed. And, but we fear, I don't know, in America, we're, we're both from, from places where I think we see a lot more density in the cities that we came from. And, uh, but uh, Americans fight that a lot still. I think it, it, it's time that uh, cities get used to high density in the right places. You want to build in smart ways. You don't want to build without any constraint. I don't want people build on Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, nor on the hills. I want people to build on undeveloped parking lot downtown. I want people to build 
you know, if there is one story building next to a train station in Silicon Valley, I want the developer to be able to build four, five, maybe six stories. We're not talking about building skyscraper. We're talking about densifying in the right places with the right strategy. It's not rocket science planners have figured it out a long time ago. Um, we just need a political uh, tide to turn. I think the Bay Area is turning. Clearly, San Francisco has changed a lot in that respect. I think the new... The new <coughs> um, planning commission uh, and the new mayor are more pro-housing than in the past. Um, and it's been a long process, but I think it's, but, but, but. There were some positive efforts, even the legislator that failed, but they, that, that's the spurs of something that yes. can come eventually. The right? Scott Wiener state bill was a very smart bill that would have, allow, would have allowed density near transit uh, and would have constrained municipalities' ability to to veto th these projects. Um, I, I think you know, building needs to be done in a respectful way, respectful of the neighborhood. Um, the other point I want to make is that it, in an in a interesting way, I think building more in the right ways has environmental benefits as well. Because if you don't build in the urban core, what you end up, you induce sprawl on the periphery. And so building downtown or building where transit here, building near jobs in places that are already developed, you know, in the urban core, actually has additional benefit because it reduces the pressure on, on the periphery of a city for building on the outskirts. The more units we can build in multi-unit buildings downtown, the fewer uh, single-family homes uh, are going to be built on, the, uh, on green land on the periphery. And I think that the, the 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 movement against development that developed in the 70s in many places in the U.S. was motivated by good reason. People were wanted to preserve open land, and they, they, after decades of massive suburbanization, they wanted to um, preserve some open land. And I think some of the, my best places in were in the Bay Area are actually came from those fights and I'm incredibly grateful that those fights took place. Today though people need to realize that you don't, you, what you want is you, you want to keep preserving uh, green land on the periphery but in order to do that you need to build more in the urban core and to build in smart ways which means also add public transit and add local amenities uh, and that's a very progressive policy and a very environmental friendly policy. So, so the the um, the other the other issue that that it's you bring out as a very important issue is the fact that the reason for high skill labor to be paid so much more at this point in time uh, is not only the force high demand of high skill labor, but the short supply of high skill labor. So we identified that as another point of 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 there's something that we can do about it to avoid this sort of divergence, right, of of, of high skill uh, the benefits to high skill labor. And you point to the to the fact that you know we might not be producing enough um, uh, college graduates, for example, and good college graduates. So there is clearly a giant push in in demand, and people wanting to go to college, uh, but the market has not adapted to that. I think we, we, you and I are both college professors. All of us here working in university, and and we it's it's I don't know. Is that something that we should be thinking about? Because clearly, yes, having more high school laborers produce would be a good idea. How to do it is is very different, and and I think I see universities as these big negative players in the business because we are monopolists. We don't like to adapt. We don't like to grow, and I feel that that we could be doing a lot more. What are your thoughts on that? 
I think this is one of the key issues for the aggregate economy of the U.S. Uh, there is overwhelming evidence um, that the supply of college graduates was growing very fast in the U.S. in the 60s and the 70s, and it slowed down in the 80s, the, after the 80s. Uh, and, and today is not as high as it should be. One effect is that the premium, the, the monetary premium for going to college has doubled. So even in the 70s... Since the 80s? Since, since the late 70s, yes. So even back then, a college graduate would make more than a high school graduate. But the difference was about 40%. Today, the difference is above 80%. And so if you then measure it over a lifetime of a worker, we're talking about big money, big money. It's, it's a huge difference in terms of how much you can buy and your standard of living. And I think ultimately that's one of the reasons why inequality nationally has grown is the fact that, that the gap between those who have a college degree or more and those who have a high school degree or less, the gap in salaries has grown so much. And that gap has grown so much in part because the supply of college graduates has not kept pace with this growing demand for college graduates that comes from general changes in technology and the workplace. Now, universities have reacted by increasing their tuitions. Uh, well, just like a fixed supply, growing demand, <laughs> yes. well. <laughs> yes. um, quality, not so much. <laughs> quality, not so much. The same quality as it used to be. Um, it's still, even after the tuition increases, though, it's still a good deal. A good deal. Yeah. Like the college graduation, because it pays so much more than before, and because it's a benefit that keeps repeating itself every year for the, your life, for your career, um, uh, it, it actually still uh, dominates the increase in tuition. Uh, in fact, when you think about college graduation as an asset, People have compared the return of investing in your children's education with the return of investing in the stock market, with the return of investing in the bond market, in real estate, and so on. Well, for the past 30 years, investing in college education was, has been the best asset you could invest in. There was no other asset that had a higher return, <laughs> uh, even just purely the economic, the economic benefits, let alone all the other benefits that we we think a college education generates. Uh, obviously, better knowledge, uh, uh, all the like the intellectual benefit. Um, what what should be the role of universities? Well, I think that that, that certainly expanding uh, and targeting uh, education better is, is crucial. Uh, I think that a very important player in this space should be community colleges, two-year colleges that are playing this, this very important role of taking students who might have otherwise stopped at the high school and then are going to two-year colleges. Uh, and then they prepare workers for 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 high skill jobs. For, for for yes, because perhaps the the purpose there is to up, up their skills game, not necessarily the credential game that often is attached to a college degree without necessarily a bump in the skills. Yes, and the community college who do that who have the, their skill level uh, actually they 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 are good engines on uh, of mobility. Um, the, um, I think a very good model, California is a very good model where the best of the students, so some com community college students stop at two years and they go and get a job. 
some, the best, can go can enroll into the U- University of California system. And I have them in my classes, and they're hardworking, bright students, and they're actually sometimes even better than the student who started uh, at Berkeley. So this transfer mechanism actually provides a way up for the top part of distribution of the community college students to move up into a four-year college. And it's, it's a, I, I would... From what I see, from from what I see, uh, appears to be a generally successful uh, idea. Go ahead. One more question. Yeah, a couple. I have a couple more. I want to. I wanted to say. I want to. I want to. I wanted to 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 ask. Uh, um, why don't you ask the last question that we have here about uh, the trend since 2012? Of course. I mean, um, Enrico, you wrote the book in 2012. Uh, what would be some updates or new trends? Imagine that you are putting out a new edition of the new geography of jobs. What would be one or two things that you will be like, oh, this would have to be there? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, I wrote the book. Uh, I mean, I was working on the book during the Great Recession. Um, and many of the trends that I was talking about were visible. But I would say that today they are even more visible. I mean, the, the difference between... The successful local economies, the San Francisco's, the Austin's, the Raleigh's, the, the Boston's, and the less successful local economies, the Detroit's, the Flint, was clearly visible in 2012, but since then has become even more pronounced. When you look at wage income differences between these places, uh, has skyrocketed ever since. Uh, in some sense, this I, the, 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 the way I'm thinking about these trends is not... It's not like a short-run uh, um, uh, forces, but the more deep-seated forces. And I think after the recession ended, uh, it the, the the economic geography became even more, even more polarized. The other thing that happened was that um, I think it was previsible in 2016 we had an election, a presidential election, and I think the geographical map of the vote for Trump versus Clinton really tracks the, um, the, 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 the economic geography that, that I'm discussing in the book. Uh, we also see similar development in other countries. Uh, if you think about the vote for Brexit, uh, it really tracks the, the divide in, in, the, in the UK. It really tracks the divide between the more successful international, global, local economies in, in the UK, like London, and the more struggling uh, uh, former manufacturing places in, in Northern England. And then the yellow vest protest in, in France also is very, very similar. It's, it's a divide between, between three or four global cities uh, in France and the provinces that are they're, they're really struggling. So in all this, I think what, what has happened is that one is the economic trends have strengthened. Uh, the, the economic strength that I described in the book has strengthened. And two, that we've seen an, a wave of political... Uh, outcomes that I think can be interpreted as uh, no. yes, can be interpreted as a reaction to those trends. So just to close it out, we're here in Austin, and walking here, you mentioned to me that if you look over your work over the past, let's say, 20, 30 years, uh, one of the biggest winners of this divergence has been Austin. Austin is it's an outlier. What, what, uh, what did you call it in 1980? What would you, how would you describe Austin 1980 versus now? I, w- I would have characterized Austin local economy in the 1980s as a sleepy provincial town. Uh, and then I would characterize, characterize it today as a global center of innovation, one that attracts 
uh, firms and workers from around the world uh, and is driven by, indeed, the very forces that I describe in the book. Uh, I think that there are other cities that have more tech jobs now, but in terms of changes over time, proportional to where they were, Austin is the biggest success stories since 1980 in the U.S. Enrico, thanks for joining us at Policy McCombs. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we wrap up, you can get more information in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. See you next time.